agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Karsten. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? Well, I'll tell you, I'm uh, I'm running behind on a whole lot of things. I sort of feel like. Uh, um, Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer trying to uh, pass a bill by Thursday, and uh, here it is Saturday morning. There so, you go. Uh, <laughs> there you go. And we, we will certainly I'm, get into I'm that. Still, yes, I'm still trying to get to what I was supposed to get done Thursday, if you yeah, follow me. So. I get it. I get it. Absolutely. We will get to that as well. Before we get to that and other things, we want to thank our newest supporters, Michael, Tucker, and Tyler, who's a who's been a supporter for a while, who increased his level of support, as well as uh, new supporters on PayPal and made one-time contributions, Brian, Mary, and Matthew. Uh, Matthew passed along uh, this message with his pledge of support. Actually, it was on uh, Patreon, I believe. But he wrote, I'm a longtime listener and was always on the verge of becoming a supporter. But your recent episode where you stood up for Kristen and her right to her opinion without being intact was inspiring. It convinced me to help support the work that you're doing. While I do not agree with Kristen's stance, it's important for everyone to be free to express themselves in our country. I'm vaccinated and a volunteer first responder, so I would encourage everyone to get vaccinated. But attacking people, as so many in the media and on both sides do, will never convince them to join your side, but rather force them to dig in further. We must truly listen, understand where they're coming from, and then give our opinions and let them make the best decision that they can. You can always catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So we we really appreciate well, that, Matthew. You know, I think that well gets, said, Matthew. Yeah, Thank you. Yes. It's to exactly uh, what we were we're getting at there, and it's nice to know that we were heard. And it was a big week for new supporters, and I think in part because of because of that message. So thank you so much. And of course, if you want to become a supporter, whether it's on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/PoliticsGuys or PayPal or Venmo, where we're at politics guys uh, you get that second full-length episode every week which airs uh, comes out at the same time as our regular episode as well as other things at different levels of support and again patreon.com slash politics guys to check it out and if you are not able financially to support the show but you would like that bonus episode every week just send me an email mike at politics and i will get that set up for you all right. So today we are going to be talking about that last minute stopgap government funding bill, the debt ceiling, the status, as Jay suggested, of the uh, delayed infrastructure and three point five trillion dollar budget resolution bills. President Biden's sinking approval rating, testimony of top Pentagon officials before the Senate Armed Services Committee and the Protecting Our Democracy Act. And as always, we will not get to all of that on this show, but we will get to all of it on our bonus show, which, uh, as I said, is released at the same time now. But before we get to any of that, we are going to take a quick break and then we will be right back to start things off. Okay, Jay. So to start things off, as I said, at the well, at the last possible moment, Congress acted to avert or I guess at least postpone a government shutdown by passing a continuing resolution that funds the federal government at current levels until December 3rd. 
The CR also includes $28.6 billion in disaster relief funding, along with $6.3 billion for resettlement of Afghan refugees. And the measure passed largely along party lines in 220 to 211 in the House, and there was a solid bipartisan majority in the Senate, 65 to 35. You know, I noticed in looking over the no votes in the Senate, all from Republicans, as you'd expect, they included that, I would say, the half dozen Republican senators who've been mentioned as potential 2024 presidential candidates and uh, Cotton, Cruz, Holly, Rubio, Sass and Scott in alphabetical order there. Um, now, the measure passed the Senate only. Did you in, alphabetize them yourself? I, you know, I actually it just it, you take it, the time to do the wow. No, that's how the, the Senate website lists them oh. that way. So that's how oh, I did got it. it. So, yeah, no, I can't take credit for the hey, alphabetizing. That's, that's a ne- next level preparation. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you know, it only passed the Senate after Majority Leader Schumer made a deal with Republicans that allowed them to get votes on a number of amendments, including one amendment that would prohibit the use of federal funds in support of President Biden's vaccine mandate for businesses with over 100 employees. And and those those amendments all failed, but they weren't really intended to pass. Republicans just wanted them so they could have a vote on the record to use in the 2022 midterms. So, Jay, did anything about this surprise you? And would you have voted with Mitch McConnell uh, in favor of it, or would you have sided with the Republicans who voted against it, which included, weirdly to me, uh, Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman, because he has a pretty generally moderate record and he's retiring, yeah. so no real political cost. But anyway, well, what, what are your thoughts on, on this, the CR? Um, yeah, I probably would have uh, voted with uh, Senate Leader McConnell. Um, I, I probably typically would, right? I yeah. mean. Um, uh, no, and and look, I think this was a this was a Republican win, um, in that uh, they got essentially the the clean bill they wanted, right? Um, that there's an extension. Uh, they avoided the the argument that you know they've uh, somehow shut down the government, um, but at the same time they're keeping everybody's feet to the fire by by setting a um, by making it only run through December. So, uh, look, this is what McConnell wanted. And I, I often lament uh, with Republicans, sort of the Casey Stengel, you know, can't anyone here play this game? Uh, but Mitch McConnell played the game and he, he played it well. And um, uh, I, I, you know, kudos to him. I, I don't I don't think, he, you know, you and I, when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, neither one of us believed that we would reach this, you know, shutdown uh, type thing. It was it was brinksmanship and someone would. Uh, would would do something eventually, and, and they did. So, yeah, uh, I, I'm so, yeah. I'm in the same position. I'm completely unsurprised about that. CRs are just a, basically a, a matter of course at this point, and so yeah, I think it was pretty unsurprising. And I actually think this was kind of the way it should have gone. I was not a, I was not crazy about tying the CR to the debt ceiling. In any case, I think they're two separate things, and so I'm perfectly fine with with, with how this with how this happened. Um, and, and speaking. Yeah. And I should have, I should have, yeah, I should have made that more clear what I was talking about. When I said clean bill. Yeah. That's what the Democrats had wanted was a vote sort of on, on both at the same time. And Republicans are, are very much opposed to giving Democrats a free pass sure. on the, the debt ceiling. Absolutely. And speaking of the debt ceiling, not, nothing much has changed really with that, though this week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that even with the extraordinary measures the department is taking, the debt ceiling will be 
reached by October 18th. But she also said, you know, that that's only an estimate uh, and that this uncertainty underscores the critical importance of not waiting to raise or suspend the debt limit. And Yellen also this week voiced support for legislation introduced in May that would repeal the debt ceiling entirely. Uh, She noted that as Congress makes these decisions and approves these decisions on taxes and spending, it should also provide the ability to essentially honor those prior obligations. Um, I I wanted to get your take on that. I mean, Janet Yellen knows a lot about the economy. Uh, She's not only an economist, not only the Treasury Secretary, but she's also the former chair of the Federal Reserve. And so what do you think about, uh, you know, her her idea saying, yeah, let's just repeal the debt ceiling entirely? Uh, I I think that would be, uh, I don't want to say disastrous. That's probably overstating it because I look in in real life, uh, what the debt ceiling uh, operates as is something of a speed bump, right? It's not a wall. It's not a hard limit. Um, it is sort of a a warning, if you will, right? That you get, you know, you get from your credit card company and say, "Look, you're you're almost maxed out." Um, uh, but please feel free feel free to apply for more credit. Uh, so, I mean, the, the debt ceiling has never, in in a meaningful way, right, really stopped uh, the U.S. from acquiring more debt. Uh, but it's I think there's an argument that it slowed it down a little bit, right, that it, it requires Congress to be uh, a little bit um, intentional uh, to 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 pay a little bit of t- uh, attention to this issue. Um, otherwise, I, I think, you know, I mean, and that's that's done just because you then have to have these these votes every now and again uh, to to raise it. And it brings up the issue. And it, at some point, uh, there are going to be some politicians who will be stung with this. Although, look, I mean, these kind of issues aren't, aren't sexy and don't tend to, to win elections, unfortunately. Uh, but so I think it's important to have it there as, as that sort of speed bump, if nothing else. Yeah. And I guess I, I thought about this and I sort of see your point in that, that it, it puts people on the record as voting to increase this. So it does, it does increase the, potential political pain, I guess you could say, or the consequences for for doing that. But I but I also think the other argument is saying, well, if you're concerned about that, you take care of it on the on the other end. Because if you're if you're if you're borrowing basically, you're essentially you're making these commitments. And if you make if you're going to make these commitments, you're going to honor them. But your point, of course, is that, well, we will eventually honor them. But maybe if I understand you correctly, you're saying maybe the fact that that debt ceiling is always looming makes it at least slightly more difficult for uh, members of Congress to engage in more deficit spending or uh lowering taxes i guess and you know and lowering revenue is that is yeah, that sort of no yeah. it it adds it adds just a little bit uh, of fiscal responsibility or at least injects that um that issue into the discussion yeah i, I think it may be more injects it into the discussion as opposed to adding it in a meaning <laughs> in, in a meaningful way certainly but well, right no and i think i think there's something to that because what usually happens is uh yes yes we're reaching the debt the debt limit um uh, and, but it's it's you know well we gotta we gotta uh, raise it <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's never any sort of discussion of okay well then let's we my gosh we immediately have to rein in spending uh, it's though we immediately have to do this or the wheels will come off yeah. um and you know the other weird thing about 
you know, just the, the, the debt and so forth. And this goes back to uh, Alexander Hamilton um, and so forth. To some extent, it's, it's almost like the U.S. debt isn't meant to be ever completely paid off. Sure. Right. It's it's revolving. It's a yeah. revolving debt. And it's it's the idea is that um, sort of by by issuing that 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 uh, uh, you, you you sort of expand your you, you, you leverage your your economic power um, and you you get buy in essentially from from debt holders uh, for the, the you know, for the country. Um, and again, that goes way back. And I'm, I'm not enough of an economist to explain it. in really great uh, simple terms but um yeah there i i don't you know the debt will never be paid off paid off it's it's just sort of always continually refinanced um partially paid off partially recruited uh, but at some point you start running into the issue of interest payments on the debt eating up more and more of of your budget uh which can can really cramp uh, one's style now we've been been fortunate in the last 10 years or so with historically real low interest rates that these refinancing and uh, taking on additional debt have been able to be accomplished at relatively low cost. Yeah. Now's the time to uh, borrow. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, it, but, but still it's debt's still debt. So. Yeah. You know, and, and what's going to happen, I think you and I both agree is that uh, Democrats will end up having to raise the debt ceiling, not suspend it, but raise it through reconciliation. It's pretty clear that you, you talked about McConnell not giving and, and uh, Senate Republicans not giving the Democrats a free pass on that, make them put their feet to feet the fire, which to me belies your argument of the Republicans not knowing how to play this game. McConnell is a master at this game uh, for, for well, better. I just, I just said McConnell is, yeah. is he's. He's maybe the one who does. There is yeah. one other person which we'll hit hit in a minute about yeah. who really knows how to play this game. But, but go ahead. But you know, Democrats are going to have under reconciliation rules. They're going to have to raise it by a specific number. I've been thinking about this, and I think they should make it a ridiculous number, uh, uh, so that it's harder to use I against them. In a way. Well, no, I no, I don't mean like I don't mean like a ridiculous number, like oh my god, they raised it to thirty trillion dollars or something like that. I think if if I were writing if I were writing the legislation, I'd raise it to one quattro decillion dollars. That's ten to the forty fifth power, um, or one followed by forty five zero. And the reason why is it's a lot harder, I think, to sort of that that accomplishes right the goal of essentially eliminating the debt ceiling. But also it's a number that just sounds inherently silly. Whereas if you say, my God, they raised the debt ceiling by five or ten trillion dollars more. It's like that sounds awful to some people. But saying that, well, you know, it's a quattro decillion now. Like what what the what the hell is that? You know, so that's my that's my free advice to the Democratic uh, Democratic caucus there. Go with a quattro decillion. Now, maybe that's not silly enough for you. There are plenty of, you know, look at a table of large numbers, that sort of thing. But that would be my advice. One quattro decillion, I think, should be the debt limit. Right. Um, no, to, to your point on that, and, and I'll, I'll be guilty of this. I, I, I think that there is just a difficulty that Republicans and conservatives have had over the years on spending issues because people's minds kind of blank out. Yeah. When they start considering those kind of numbers or or the inability to put those kind of numbers in context. Absolutely. Uh, and and I'm I'm look, I'm somebody who's interested in this and follows this sort of stuff. And even to me uh, that that happens. Right. Um, where you're talking about, 
you know, the difference between a, a 3.5 trillion spending and 1.5 trillion. Um, yeah, it, it just doesn't seem like real numbers. And everyone sort of knows, well, how much does the government spend? I don't know, 50 bazillion dollars. Yeah, yeah you know exactly. I mean? Yeah, there, there's there's no there's no sense of of uh, and, and that's that's always a problem arguing the the fiscal conservative, uh, the fiscally conservative argument is it's tough to to show that direct link between government spending and people's lives. Yeah. Right. And and I I think that's, you know, that's that's just always been sort of a rhetorical hurdle to get over. And and I don't know that anyone's ever done it really well. And hopefully we'll start doing it better. Well, I I, of course, my hope is my hope is just the opposite. (laughs) You know, so I'm okay with that. But 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 yeah, but I think on on that larger policy point, you you agree that there's there's no way. I mean, the business community, there's there's pretty strong uh, agreement that this is not going to happen. And so even though. Exactly. So this will this will be taken care of sometime before October, October 18th. And the Democrats will have to specify a number and it's probably not going to be a quattro decillion. And that is going to be something that Republicans will attempt to use against them in the midterm elections. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, although, I, I mean, I think what's going to be interesting is will the Republicans be able to um, hold hold firm? Um, well, I think we, so. As we get closer to that, yeah, I, I think so. Because I think it, I think this is a game of chicken that they know they can't lose because there is a way for the Democrats to actually pass this without any Republican votes. And so I think McConnell will keep will keep his caucus entirely in line on that. And so, yeah, I, that's that's my expectation. Yeah. Well, no, my my, it's not. Um, that's not. So that's not my question. I, maybe I should have phrased it differently. Um, it's not so much whether McConnell will keep his caucus in line. Is can Schumer keep his caucus in line first, yeah. right? Because if if Schumer can't keep his caucus in line and says, "I just don't have the votes," uh, so Mitch, the world's going to end now. Uh, well, yeah. do you have defectors? Yeah, I, I don't think that. I, no, there are all the Democrats are going to. Democrats are are always more willing to vote for increasing the debt ceiling than Republicans. So yeah, they have the votes. It's not going to be a, that. I don't think that's going to happen now. So, but okay. we we will see within uh, within a matter of a few weeks. So, uh, in fact, we will be doing the show that that week when the debt ceiling is breached or not. And so, we will almost certainly be talking about that again. And we will pat ourselves on the back for our fine predictions. Though so this was, I think, kind of an easy one. So, anyway, before we get to what you alluded to in the open, that is the status of the infrastructure bill on that three point five trillion dollar spending measure, we're going to take one more break and then we will be right back. All right. So as I said, our next story, we're going to talk about, well, the two sort of linked, clearly linked bills at this point. Those two, I would call them potentially presidency defining pieces of legislation before Congress. That's the $1 trillion infrastructure bill and that $3.5 trillion House budget resolution. Well, at this point, they still are both in limbo despite considered efforts by House Democratic leaders and President Biden to push them to push through the infrastructure bill, which was previously approved by a bipartisan Senate majority. President Biden, appearing with Speaker Pelosi on Friday afternoon, said, we're going to get this done. It doesn't matter when. It doesn't matter whether it's in six minutes, six days or six weeks. We're going to get it done. But in a closed door meeting with congressional Democrats, the president reportedly also acknowledged that the linkage of the infrastructure bill and the budget resolution is just reality. 
Now, in a letter to her caucus, Pelosi seconded Biden's optimism about the eventual passage of both bills, as well as their linkage, writing, clearly the bipartisan infrastructure bill will pass once we have agreement on the reconciliation bill. Now, the infrastructure bill, as Jay mentioned earlier, was initially scheduled to take place on Thursday. Then Speaker Pelosi delayed it after House progressives said they're going to withhold their votes until they get more of what they want in the upcoming $3.5 trillion spending measure. And Pelosi then made assurances that there would be a vote on Friday, which there wasn't. Uh, and really, I think this this comes as no surprise to anyone who's been paying attention because the most liberal House members have said all along that they wouldn't go along with the infrastructure bill unless they could vote for that larger spending measure. But the problem. Right. And unless unless they and not not only that, unless that larger spending measure passed first. Yeah. And and, and the problem, of course, is that this. That just isn't going to fly in the Senate. On Thursday, Senator Manchin said he would not support a bill that had a price tag of more than $1.5 trillion, and that's way off from what House progressives want. And Manchin also says said that he wanted to see means testing for any new social spending in the bill. And also, he wanted assurances that nothing in that bill would eliminate the production and use of fossil fuels, important for a senator from West Virginia. And Manchin, while he said he's largely okay with the tax increase proposals in the legislation, that's a problem apparently for Arizona Senator Kirsten Kristen Cinema, who said she's not in favor of significant tax increases. And that infrastructure bill, which passed in the Senate in, in its early August, actually, and that was sixty-nine to thirty. That includes $550 billion in new spending and would add $256 billion to the deficit over the next decade, according to the CBO. And uh, key provisions of that, that that didn't end up passing, and it's 2,700 pages. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm guessing you haven't either, yes, Jay. And the grand total cost on that one, as I understand, again, depending on how you score it, is, is roughly in the... Uh, again, one and a half trillion, but only five hundred fifty in new spending. Yeah. That's important to point out. Uh, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. But uh, so, well, before we get into specifics, any of those those bills, what's your take on just the the politics of all this and how you see it playing out? Uh, first, uh, I want I do need to uh, take a victory lap in that this is as I have foreseen. Uh, I think on the show that I did with Trey back in. Uh, it was probably sometime back in August, right? Uh, that this is exactly where we were, where we were heading, um, and and here we are. Trey Trey disagreed. He thought, "Oh, we'll just, they'll just pass both of them, and it, it'll be smooth sailing." Um, but that is that is not the case. Uh, and at, at this point, um, Nancy Pelosi no longer really controls the House Democrat Caucus. I don't think. Um, I I think AOC and the squad do. Uh, and and that's that's a big problem when you've got an infrastructure bill, which should be an easy layup uh, for for your your caucus. Uh, you would probably even get some um, House Republicans who would uh, vote with you on that uh, because infrastructure generally even even human infrastructure. Right. As, as this bill has broadly defined it uh, is generally pretty politically popular. And uh, for a couple reasons, one, it actually gives you something tangible. Uh, second, it creates actual real good paying, uh, typically private sector jobs to, that go along with it. Uh, and it gives it gives politicians something to point to of saying, hey, I got this bridge fixed. I got this road repaved. 
um, that sort of thing. Um, but well, let me and, say, and, Jay, and, and, and it's also this is the type of bill that uh, Pelosi's most vulnerable members, uh, those moderates or those uh, Democrats who won in in Trump leaning districts, need uh, to be able to run for reelection. Yeah, I, I I don't disagree with the benefits of infrastructure, and we'll get into the policy aspects of that. And but the idea that the squad controls Congress is laughable. Uh, and I get the squad's a big bogeyman to, to you folks on the right, but uh, uh, it's just they may control Twitter, our political Twitter to a certain extent, but they don't control Congress. It's just a matter of votes. This is what happens when you have razor thin right. majorities in your chamber and those groups to have those final votes or anyone who can, you know, can, can band together like that, they have outsized Influence, so they don't they don't control Congress any more than the House moderates do. Because let, let's well, keep they, well, they, well. Let me let me finish here. Let's keep okay. in mind that the House progressives initially wanted somewhere between six to ten trillion dollars in this larger bill. They're not going to get anything close to that. And so this this idea that this is some big win for progressives, I think this is just the media looking for it, looking for an angle. And it's just not the case, because in the end, both of these bills are going to pass. And all of this inside baseball, internal negotiating stuff, none of it's going to matter because both of these bills are huge. And when they pass and they both will pass, Democrats will you know campaign on having made massive transformative changes to help regular Americans, and I think that's absolutely the case, as well as pointing out that on the infrastructure bill, which will eventually pass, I agree with the president on this, that was something that President Trump, congressional Republicans said that they would do when they were in charge, but they failed to do. So this is all, this is all just, just will be, will end up in the wash. It's not a big deal at at all, and everything's going to be fine. Okay. Well, you're. I think you're. You're kind of whistling past the graveyard. A no, not at all. You're. And you're. So I. Well, I am willing was to it, stay. It wasn't. It wasn't fine on Thursday. No, sure it was. This um, is just. This is I mean, just inside. The squad yeah. is in control of Congress. Well, they were in control of Congress on Thursday, and they were in control of Congress on Friday. Um. Well, so, I guess. What do you mean I mean, by you control, Jay? They'll both, they'll both pass. I mean, and that may be the the case. Let Let's be. Uh, let's be clear. Both pass in their current form. Well, no, they're not going to pass in their current form. This is it's about compromise. The Democratic caucus is, you know, there are a variety of views and both sides are going to compromise. And even, you know, even the House progressives understand that. And so this is I mean, what's here's what's going to happen. Mansion and cinema will come up on their end to somewhere around two trillion. House progressives will either have to take it or get nothing, because one thing that all of the congressional Democrats know is that the window to make this happen is not going to be open that much longer, certainly not forever. And if both sides don't end up compromising, it's really likely that that is it in terms of big policy changes in the Biden administration, at least until after 2025, if everything breaks exactly right electorally, which I don't think is going to happen for the Democrats. So this is this is no big deal. This is this is all going to blow over and uh, we're going to end up with uh, with that. Basically, well, we're going to end up with the infrastructure deal that the Senate passed and we're going to end up with around two trillion dollars in the other bill. And it's all going to be good. So and that's that's similar to what you and I both predicted yeah. months ago. Absolutely. Yeah. So yep. let's let's be clear on that. Um, what I think. Is, so going back to what I alluded to a minute ago, the other person 
who very much knows how to play this game is Joe Manchin. Um, uh, sort of newscast here that Jonah Goldberg um, referred to him as acting president Joe Manchin. <laughs> um, and I think uh, he's he's right to some extent. There was this is sort of an underreported story um, uh, in the the mainstream media, but for for weeks now, uh, Senator Schumer has been uh, attacking Manchin and progressive attacking Manchin, saying, "Well, look, what do you want? Give me a number. Give me a number." Uh, and the implication being, well, no one ever gave me a number or told me what what it is that Manchin is seeking. Um, well, then it turns out there is a signed agreement uh, between Schumer and Manchin, signed by both of them, where Manchin says, look, what I'm looking for is 1.5. And with the other uh, caveats that you mentioned on the, the fossil fuels, uh, also an interesting piece of that is sort of the, the, the idea that he wants to spend down uh, the COVID relief funds before new money gets spent, which seems reasonable. Um, but you know, this, this really makes, uh, puts, puts the lie to the line that Schumer has been pushing for some time is like, well, look, I'd like to negotiate, but you know, no one will give me a number and I'm, you know, not going to negotiate against myself, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, Joe Manchin knows how to play the game and, and knows what he's doing. Um, and I, I think in, in the, you know, he's he's also he sort of put himself right into a position where uh, it's not going to be easy for for him to to simply move off his his one point five. The other side has to move first. Um, so I think I think that's going to be something interesting to watch. I don't know how that's going to end up. Uh, like I said, I, I think we end up somewhere south of, of two trillion just because there's uh, I think I think Manchin will need that. Uh, that, you know, that that's just a symbolic kind of number. Um, yeah. The other thing that the mansion, the, the mansion had pushed for, and which I, I think is, is sort of fun to, to mention. And, and this is sort of when we, we talk about these numbers of between, um, you know, three and a half and one and a half trillion is asking for some sort of sense of where the money goes and where it's going to be spent and how it's going to be spent. Uh, and, and I think we get to sort of, sort of the, bizarreness of of well you know what are we going to do for the economy well we'll spend 3.5 trillion and the question is on what well you know green stuff environment building back better as as opposed to the more rational type uh proposal of we're going to do x y and z and this is how much it's going to cost uh here are the programs we're going to fund uh it's more let's come up with a number and then we'll backfill it later with with what we're actually going to do with that number so, yeah, I, I don't know that that's really I think we have a pretty good idea of, of where the money is going for, for both of those. In fact, maybe, maybe that's I think I'd like to kind of shift into that because we've been talking so much about the politics of it. But obviously, th- these this legislation, both pieces will are big enough to be you know, transformative. And so for better or worse, depending on how you how you look at it. And so I think it's worth looking at it from that perspective. In fact, we had a question last week from in our discord group, Jordan, uh, who suggested, you know, we talk about what are the things in both of these pieces of legislation that we like, dislike would change. And, and that seemed like a pretty good idea to me. So maybe maybe we could start with the with, you know, the the infrastructure bill. And just uh, as a reminder to folks, that is uh, a little over a, a trillion dollars with, I said, like $550 billion in new spending. And um, 
key provisions of that, $110 billion for, for bridges and roads, $66 billion for passenger rail with the biggest share of that, going to maintenance and improvements in Amtrak's a pretty heavily utilized Northeast Corridor routes, $65 billion for expanding high-speed internet access, $64 billion for updating and securing the power grid, $55 billion for water infrastructure, $47 billion for cybersecurity and climate change, $39 billion for public transit, and $25 billion for airports. Those are kind of the big, the main line items on that. So when you look at that bill, Jed, that, that again, that was a bill that passed with a pretty strong bipartisan majority in the, in the Senate. How, how do you feel about that just passing as it is? Um, I, I, I would... Uh agree to being to passing that as it is there's pieces parts in there i don't like that i think are not really infrastructure right there's all this additional uh, job training there's other additional social programs that are being built as as human infrastructure um I, and i i don't think that that really belongs in the bill but uh fixing roads bridges uh, uh waterways securing the grid i think those are all uh, good good goals um as with any government program, it typically will probably cost more than it ought to and take longer than it ought to. But but this is still stuff we have to do. And and these are things that I would say most Americans and, and most Republicans and conservatives would say, this is a, a proper role of government, right? Uh, this, is this fundamental infrastructure kind of piece? Um, so with that, I, again, I could I could quibble about the number. Um uh, and and quibble about some of the uses, but but for the most part, uh, I think the the infrastructure bill is is you know not overly objectionable. Yeah, I I, I and, and I was, which to me is like I said, I think that's why it's the it ought to be an easy political layup for the House. And it'll it'll get done. But uh, you know, I my only issue with it is I I don't think it's big enough, uh, especially. The oh, yeah. traditional infrastructure stuff, because there's I mean, you can look at all sorts of different analysis and it's pretty clear that there's a huge infrastructure spending gap. And, uh, you know, the longer you wait on infrastructure maintenance uh, and improvements, the worse shape you're usually in. So not only that, but a number of studies have found that uh, this is actually a really solid more than pays for itself investment. Uh, there's a guy, an uh, engineer and a researcher named uh, Henry Pard- but Petrosky, who actually I interviewed on the podcast a few years ago, he found that traffic congestion by itself costs over $120 billion every year. Uh, there's also a study from the University of Maryland back in 2014 found that for every $1 invested in infrastructure, you get around $3 more in GDP growth. Now, obviously, that trails off. At a certain point, we're really underinvested right now, but we're nowhere near that point. So, I mean... If I were writing, if I were writing the infrastructure bill, just the roads and bridges part of the bill would be around a trillion dollars, and I, I and power grid and all that. So I think there's a good case to be made for that. But I understand the political realities, and you take what you can get. And I will be very happy when this bill passes, and I think it's going to be a good thing for the country. So that's kind yeah, of yeah. Like I said, I, I can uh, I can certainly live with it. Although I, I have no doubt that there are bits and pieces in the, hidden in there that I, I don't like. Uh, I, I talked I talked a couple a couple months ago about our, our dumb bike path, right. That was been installed. Um, that there's going to be stuff like that, right. That, um, stuff that you don't, no one really needs, no one really wants, and is not a great idea, but Hey, here's some money for it. So we have to build it. So, uh, I, I suspect there's going to be some of that, but on the bigger picture, I'm, I'm generally okay with the infrastructure for, for those reasons that you, you point out, right. Yeah. It gives you 
there's something tangible there. There's a, a tangible asset that you now have. So, yeah. yeah. So and now I think what's going to be more disagreement between us is on that $3.5 trillion budget resolution. And of course, at that spending level, we'd need a whole show and maybe a series of show to go through all the major items in any kind of detail. But just to kind of a quick overview, uh, and we've talked about this before, the major items in the resolution as it stands now, free preschool, free community college, long-term elder care through Medicaid, new dental, hearing, and vision benefits in Medicare, lower drug costs by allowing, by allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, an extension of the recently expanded child tax credit, uh, pretty significant green energy and climate mitigation investments. Uh, uh, the, there, was the, there was the citizenship thing, but that was pulled because of the parliamentarian. We talked about that uh, last week. And also tax code revisions targeted those who make over $400,000 a year, as well as big corporations. Uh, so I'll start on this one. Why don't you start on this one? What you, is, there, is there anything you like in this? Not, not particularly. Um, <laughs> look, I, I think there are some things that you and I have talked about that would could make sense and could be smart policy changes. Some of the the elder elder care stuff uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I think is there a better way for our country to handle that? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, is this the the way to do it? Uh, no, throwing it all together in this this uh, you know monster bill. Uh, no, and 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 again, when you get to these these big huge pieces, the you know it's you find out what's in it after you pass it. Uh, that's, that's really no way to run a railroad. Um, the other thing to consider is just the sheer enormity of this. Remember back in, in, uh, 2009, uh, when uh, President Obama was pushing for the, the stimulus bill, uh, which passed with, with, uh, some, some bipartisan support, uh, it was, it was roughly a, tr a trillion dollars, uh, or just under a trillion dollars, uh, and and that was in the sense of listen, we need to do something immediately uh, as a stimulus to get us out of the worst economic condition since the Great Depression. Uh, it was sort of national emergency type uh, type legislation, and still, uh, and this is in two thousand nine, uh, you know, a little over ten years ago, the big concern was. This is crazy. No one's, we've never spent this much money before. And now we're talking about spending more than three times that amount of money. That's not even including the, the infrastructure stuff, right? Four times that amount, including the infrastructure. Uh, when the economy is, in many ways, uh, certainly not perfect, but uh, you don't have uh, anywhere close to the, the unemployment that you did uh, or the, the economic issues that you had during the Great Recession. Um, it sort of it sort of assumes that you know again our our problem right now isn't um, you know lack of of a, a stimulus right to get the, the the economy moving it's it's almost the 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 other uh, issue that we it's being hampered held back by inflation by what I would argue is is too much money being pumped into the system uh, and uh, too few goods and and too few people producing them. So I, that's that's I just think, you know, to put this in perspective of the, you know, why exactly do we need this largest, biggest uh, transformational uh, expenditure? And the argument um, from the, the left, and I, I certainly support this argument fully, is that you always do. 
Well, no, 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 I don't always do, and you know that's you know that's not the case. No, I'm saying but, the left. That's the argument. Is the oh, only, sure. the, you know, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, I'm not saying you. I'm okay, saying. gotcha. The argument from the left, and in this case, I certainly support it. Is that is that there are some pretty major holes in, in our social welfare system, and this is and this is particularly an opportunity, a, a rare moment in time where we might have the ability. Uh, there is that small political window to do something about that. Like, for instance, the idea that if you are on Medicare, your dental, hearing, and vision, you have to, that isn't covered. That's always seemed to me to be just really bizarre. Or the fact that Medicare can't negotiate with drug companies to, to lower prices, that always seemed bizarre to me. Um, you know, there are other parts of this that maybe I'm a little less, I could be persuaded, maybe aren't aren't the best investments given where we are fiscally, but things like that, or extending the child tax credit. I think that's a, that to me, yes, absolutely. Now I agree with, I think I largely agree with Senator Manchin that it maybe makes sense to means test more of these things. And like, for instance, take the child, child care tax credit right now. It's that um, it was recently expanded. As I mentioned, $3,600 for children five and under, $3,000 for kids that are six to 17. Then that, the first phase out is at $150,000 joint household income, then another one at 400000 Well, I think you could make an argument as saying that make it more for people in, for instance, household incomes of $50,000 or below, which that sounds really low, doesn't it? But that's like 37% of all households in this country are at $50,000 or below household income, and then make the phase outs at a lower level to give more people to give more money to the people who need it the most. So I, I would I would be in favor of targeting it much more. The same thing for uh community college. I, I don't actually I'm not actually in favor of free to everyone community college. Uh, I think what would make a lot more sense, for instance, would be to expand the Pell Grant program. And that's specifically, again, targeted to lower income students. Now, I should point out that not surprisingly, this legislation does that as well. It raises it from around $6,500 to $13,000 per year by 2028. But given the fact that right now, the average cost of tuition at a public in-state college is just over ten grand a year, and it's going to be a lot more than that by 2028. I think the simple thing to do is just raise up the Pell Grants and, and not try to do a free-for-everyone sort of thing. But I, I get – I want to say I get the universality, the universe, the universality of it because when you make – Universality. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for, looking for. The universality of it because when you make social welfare programs universal, it – locks them in a lot more. But I also think that that's the kind of spending that's the most questionable, though certainly giving these benefits to the more politically active classes who need them less, that makes, that's smart politics, but I don't think it's the best policy. Well, you, you sound like Joe Manchin uh, without the twang there. I mean, yeah. uh, well, yeah, of course, uh, I, I have a different view from the fossil fuel thing, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a centrist Democrat. So, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think that there is something to be said for that. So absolutely. But I, I wondered, you but know. So, so what I'm saying is I, I would, you know, you asked me, would I, would I support the yeah. infrastructure? I mean, would you support $3.5 trillion or would you uh, uh, pair that back a little bit with some of the, I mean, you said means testing and, and perhaps limiting some of these, targeting these programs a little bit 
to to certain populations and and end up at a, a significantly lower or not lower yeah, uh, lower that, number. Yeah, that's what I'd like to see. I think that's I mean that's okay. what I believe we're going to end up with. And I mean from a again from a political standpoint, it makes sense because the the, the middle and and wealthier classes those are the most politically active, the most politically powerful, and so when something big happens, they want their peace and doing things that's just right. for the poor. Well, they don't vote, you know. There are so I you know that's that's the sad reality, and so I'm for anything that targets the most aid to the people who need it most, and a, a happy consequence of that is that that means that it increases the the deficit less. So yeah, I think that's a that's a win win kind of thing. So, uh, and this is maybe a little bit of a tangent on the the child tax credit. Uh, so, there's what are your thoughts in the extent that look the child tax credit uh, of, of which I, I benefit from. Um, uh, even again, Mike, as you pointed out, the you know plutocrats like myself um, uh, benefit from from some of these programs. Uh, is this sort of moving towards almost like a is ty- child tax credit the new universal basic income? I guess for for people who want to have kids, but I you know, I think it's way too low to be anything. You should you should get like, on the you should get on the on the, on the train on that, Mike. I mean, you can't miss the, you the train left the station a while ago. But yeah, no, I I mean, yeah. certainly I don't think there's anyone who's saying you know uh, we should have kids because uh, it's it's a good financial proposition. Because I think as anyone with kids w- would say is that the idea of uh, thirty six hundred dollars to raise a kid five and under for a year that's uh, that's not going to pay for itself, you know. So yeah, I don't know, but but just the idea that because again I, I don't think that people make these decisions based no. on on how much they're going to get from the government um but they you know if, if you say hey you know every year i get an extra because this is important the the credit is fully refundable yeah exactly right it's not it's not just a uh, we're gonna uh credit this against your other taxes uh, up to the point where you you owe money um it's it's the point of even if you are paying no taxes uh, you get this money, um, and, and you know, so you could you could well say, hey, you know what, government gives me ten, twelve thousand bucks every year, can't beat that. I mean, that that is sort of a form of again, it's not universal basic income in that. Look, I can live off this and not work, but it's it's sort of entrenching that kind of permanent subsidy, uh, and I, I think that's kind of problematic because those things, as you point out, don't. Uh, they don't shrink, uh, and uh, if anything, they they tend to expand. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, and I don't see it as. But the difference is, I don't see it as problematic any more than I see entrenching the subsidy of of Social Security and Medicare for people over sixty five. I say yes, let's entrench that, let's entrench it, and let's let's raise it up so that people who are in the most dire economic need don't have to don't have to be concerned about where they're next you know how they're going to afford both heat and rent and food so yeah i am totally in favor of entrench let's entrench that sucker as hard as we can absolutely i i don't doubt it yeah yeah but which is not to say and you're going to get comments on this because you always get comments about being out of touch as the plutocrat you are (laughs) um you're not you're not saying let the poor figure out what to do on their own no i'm 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 not saying that, but I'm saying that every time you create a new subsidy, there is a lobbying group uh, interest that springs up to protect and expand it, uh, and that these these things seldom go away. And if you're someone like me who is concerned about uh, debts and deficit uh, and the fact that 
the more you increase entitlements, the less you have uh, to spend on discretionary spending. Uh, that that this is this is bad news. Yeah, right? this is where and, you and, and I, I think differ. That, and I, I would say, and I would I would make the argument that generally, the more people have to rely on government um, to to survive or to get by or, or or to perceive that they need to rely on government, uh, I think that's bad uh, on a whole lot of fronts. Yeah. On a, and- a, and, and activity front on a democracy front on a freedom front on all all that yeah. and, and i and i just think it's just sad and tragic and pitiful how weak and full of holes our social safety net is in in the in the largest you know economy in the world compared to so many other countries who do it so much better than we do and they're not you know totalitarian horrific states you know and so and that that's you know it's just a fundamental uh difference of uh difference of values i guess in that sense and so i you know as i said i think a few weeks ago right on the show or a few months ago saying that democrats and republicans or liberals and conservatives look at this spending and they could say the exact same thing this is going to make us more like western europe and and on my side i'm like yeah let's bring it on baby and on your side you're like oh my god and that's that's where we're at so yeah give me my freedom prize yeah yeah, if we could if we can be if we could be more like the nordic countries especially i am I'm signing on for that in a big way. But that's All right. All right. So, uh, yeah, uh, before, you know, one other thing I wanted to ask you about in this, this has been talked about before, what do you think about, uh, and this might be a, a standalone thing, but that idea of allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. I mean, that to me seems like kind of like a market sort of thing. And I, I, I don't know, I might've asked you about that before in other contexts, but do you think- that's Yeah, no, we, reason- we've had this discussion yeah. before. And, and my, my concern is always, it's, it's less about one Medicare negotiating prices and more about Medicare dictating prices. Well, yeah, right. and, and certainly uh, that gives them more power to do. But don't you don't you yeah. also feel like when you look at when you when you look at just the the fact that U.S. drug prices are so much higher and we're essentially subsidizing the rest of the world that you know, kind of in Trumpian terms, we're being played for suckers by big pharma. Well, I think we're being played by suckers for the rest of the world uh, is probably more 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 apt. But I, my concern, America first, Jay. You you start you start putting these you know, whatever essentially price controls on something like uh, pharmaceuticals, you're going to get less of them. You're going to take away the incentive uh, to to create and to, uh, you know, have have more of these drugs. Uh, and, and that's that's my my bigger concern. Um, right. My daughter's on insulin um, uh, has to be will be for for her entire life. Um, and, you know, there's this one you know, line of argument says, well, okay, well, the government should just pay for that and it'll be free. Okay, fair enough. But if the government doesn't pay uh, a significant amount where where companies are still making money on it, they're just going to stop producing it. And and that that leads to shortages. And I think that is, to me, a, a bigger concern, uh, the, the shortages rather than... Um, well, I get that. I get that argument, but but the fact of the matter is, right, that we're essentially being the not the arsenal of democracy, but the arsenal of I don't know pharmaceuticals because we are providing yeah. this subsidy. And so, are you saying that that's basically just how it has to be? Because it's not like all these other countries are going to say, "Oh, we will remove our price controls so that the United States bears less of a burden." Well, no. I mean, what what, what could happen is is um, the these pharmaceutical companies could say to the other countries. 
here's the price. We don't care what your price controls are. If if you want to subsidize that that price through your uh, ample social welfare net, uh, please please go ahead and feel free to do so. But here's here's what it costs us to produce it. Uh, you were entitled to make a, a legitimate profit off that. Um, hey guys, we just saved the world from COVID. Um, you know, I, I, I think that would be the approach. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, I, I, there certainly are heroic researchers who care deeply about humanity and making people's lives better in, in the pharmaceutical industry. No question in my mind. But the idea that the, you know, the, the people in the corporate suite are, are, are sitting there saying, you know, we are, we are these, we these self, uh, self, non-self-interested heroes who are just concerned about saving the world. And we just want to make a little bit of profit. I mean, let you can go too far. No, the other way. no, but okay. you're, you're completely, mis- that's, that's sort of exactly my argument is uh these people are not selfless okay um and we shouldn't expect them to be no not at all right not i mean it, you know look i i really like my job um i enjoy what i do most of the time but would i just do it for free uh no yeah and i expect neither would you no no definitely and not. so um i think that's that's sort of the idea is a lot of these folks would say look i um you know, take, for example, people who are doing this, the coronavirus research. Uh, they're doing it under dangerous conditions dealing with this virus. It's uh, they are probably some of the best and brightest and spent years and years uh, in, in, you know, top notch educational institutions getting where they are, uh, worked with all kinds of other dangerous viruses getting where they are. Um, they have uh, incredibly, uh, you know, big, big pressures on them uh, from the 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 public from the government from their employers to get this done to get it right to get it done quickly um and then you're going to say well you know we're not going to pay you quite as much as you know we 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 th- and and you know you could you could then just look and say well hey i i can do a, you know get a better paying job doing something different that doesn't involve dealing with uh deadly viruses um and, and you know that's that's what they'll do uh likewise companies can say Look, this this line of, of work, and, and you see this a lot, right, with with pharmaceuticals. This is often a, a big complaint about them, is they uh, make a whole lot more selling a, a sort of basic, you know, high blood pressure drug uh, that that you know everybody or or you have a huge volume of people who need and take than they do researching and working on, uh, you know, certain rare diseases. Yeah. Uh, just because the the it, the market isn't there, right? There's there's not that market incentive, um, and that's my concern. Is is the the more you curtail their ability to make a profit, um, the the um, yeah, I hear the your less argument. They're and going to invest there, and 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 Mike, the 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 answer to that isn't government subsidies; it's more competition across pharmaceutical companies, right? How do you create that? You know, well, it gets into a different. It's it's, it's Pfizer saying, "Look, we want to get ours done for this much and make this profit," and Moderna saying, "No, we're going to, uh, you know, sell it for this much," and and that's that's where you, you know, have the price control. Yeah. Well, then then you get into the whole. I mean, that that's sort of the basic. I mean, our whole antitrust regime is built on that premise that uh, the best way to control prices is, is through a vibrant market. So. Well, that we could get into our whole antitrust and if, regime and well, how yeah, and how yeah, we introduce sort of the giant gorilla of the of of uh, Medi- Medicare Medicaid um, that that would um, what's the word I'm looking for 
um, uh, deform that market or, or mute, I don't know. I'm sort of, I'm, I understand I what you're uh, saying. It's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's called a monopsony when you have, uh, yeah. One, one basically one buyer or one huge buyer essentially, and that right. would force doesn't control everything, but is 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 controls enough to. Um, uh, well, I think your I, I I think your concern your concern for the welfare of the pharmaceutical companies is uh, perhaps uh, greater than it should be. Uh, and I also think that there's some middle ground between driving them into the ground and, you know, regulations or, or, or basically saying they can make not enough, not enough money to keep going and just basically saying they can do whatever the hell they want. I do think there is a middle ground. And I think properly written, me- giving Medicare at least some sort of uh, ability to negotiate within certain bounds would be would be reasonable and a good thing. But we could do a whole show on the pharmaceutical industry and antitrust, and, and maybe we will. In fact, uh, I think in the next, we actually recently I interviewed uh, Eric Posner, who's a, a writer on research on antitrust, and I, hopefully I'll have that interview up in the next week or two, some pretty interesting things about that. But anyway, um, one more thing I think we have time for uh, in this show, and that's uh, kind of related to all of this stuff, really. Uh, President Biden's sinking approval rating. Uh, Just Friday, the Associated Press, uh, along with the National Opinion Research Center, released the results of their latest poll on Biden's job approval. And the the general public is split just about right down the middle, according to this poll, 50 percent approve, 49 percent disapprove. And that represents a continuing slump for Biden, who in that poll was at 59 percent approval in July, 54 in August. And the drop in this particular poll is in line with other presidential approval polls. Uh, 538 uh, keeps track of all of them, basically all the big ones. And they currently have their average of polls at 48.7 disapproval to 45 percent approval. So even worse for the president. Now, if you put this in historical context, we we look back to really the beginning of uh, polling, essentially. Well, Donald Trump at this point, 38.5% approval. That's pretty dreadful, actually, right? But Obama was at 52.2%. George W. Bush, 9-11 influenced that. He was at 81.1%. Bill Clinton at 52.5%. And if you look, again, way back to the advent of modern presidential polling, that's the Truman administration, Biden is right now below every single one of the other 12 presidents in that period, with the exception of Trump. And so the question is, well, how big of a deal is this and what sort of ramifications, if any, does this have for 2022 and 2024? So what do you think, Jay? Is this something where where Biden and Democrats should be like, oh, wow, or not good or, or Republicans should be kind of licking their chops? Uh, yeah, it's it's not good. Um, and the, the bigger number to look at is where does that approval stand uh, re- with his own party? Right. I mean, if you if you go into these things and, and it makes sense that most of the time these things hover around 50 percent, um, especially and we're just coming out of a, a fairly close election uh, that, you know, most partisans are going to say, no, I approve, no, I disapprove. Um, so it, 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 what's what's more significant is how many members of his own party are now disapproving of his job performance. And even more significant than that are how many, uh, you know, independent voters. Uh, where are they on this question? And I think the numbers there on on the independents are, are it's really pretty dire. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's 
that's not not great, and especially going into the midterms. I mean, what this does is it it handicaps uh, the president's ability to help candidates in midterms uh, who are in swing districts. Yeah, and and to me. I don't see it as a big deal at all. I mean, Afghanistan is part of the reason for the drop. And that's a short term blip because plenty of plenty of evidence suggests that Americans typically don't care for long about foreign policy unless U.S. troops or U.S. citizens are being killed. And well, the, the hundred the hundred or so who are still there, I'm sure they care about it. But, you know, I, I don't I, well, to the extent to the extent they are allowed to vote absentee. I, I expect yeah. their approval rating will, is rather low at this point. Yeah, I'm not. Well, I'm not saying that's not a real. That's not. That's not a concern. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not. I don't mean to suggest that you're you're denigrating that, right? But I, I I get it. You're talking in the broader picture that yeah, typically foreign policy uh, stuff doesn't influence domestic right. elections. Yeah, and and you're right. And yeah. you're right on that. And, and the Democrats are going to get these two bills through. And so I think once that happens, once we look back or once if we look forward to and I think both of these bills are definitely going to pass by the end of the year. And so when when we start looking into early, very early 2022, Biden's approval numbers are going to be pretty, I mean, pretty normal, pretty not great or anything, because as you pointed out, that partisan split. But also, I think. COVID and post-COVID inflation, to the extent that it sticks around, can come into play. And I think assuming that we're back to something approaching kind of a maskless normal by this summer, this coming summer, uh, I think that's going to be to Biden's benefit. And if inflation is, as I predict, is back to more or less kind of a 2 3% by then, I think his numbers are going to be pretty solid. Now, if those things don't happen, and you predicted on the inflation front that that wouldn't be the case. Then right. I think I there's was saying I was saying five percent by the end of the year. Yeah, and and uh, I you know, well we're gonna we'll come back to that. But we'll see, yeah, yeah. But but also you know it seems to me like Donald Trump right now is responding to this Biden slump. He's talking and acting a lot more like a 2024 candidate. And I was curious. I every once in a while I check the uh, 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 presidential odds. I uh, go to uh, generally I go to sports betting dime sports odds sites. I'll, Put the link in the show notes there for anyone who's curious. But Donald Trump right now, the top Republican uh, favorite, he's still below uh, below Biden and Harris, as you would expect. But he's followed by DeSantis, Haley, Pence, and then Tucker Carlson to round out the top five Republicans there. And I mean, do you think that do you think that this has much relation at this point on on 2024? Or do you think it's just too far off to really even, you know, be concerned about that? Well, one thing builds on another, right? Um, I think, you know, the the impact of Afghanistan is not going to go away, uh, as as you think. Really? Um, Why is that? Because, I want, yeah, I want to hear from you on that. That's- because this is when you have something that is it comes off as sort of national embarrassment, right? Uh, like a fleeing Saigon. Um, when you do something, and this is just uh, looking at the the actual you know, optics, how it would be used in political commercials um, of, of you know, Biden saying, you know, being juxtaposed of uh, with with saying, oh, I don't expect that there anything, you know, the Taliban's not going to take over anytime soon. And uh, then juxtapose that with images of, of people, um, uh, you know, crowding the airport uh, with uh, caskets uh, being unloaded from planes with him looking at his watch. Uh, those kind of things with with his head down at the press conference, uh, those images, uh, I, I think, are, are stick. 
Let um, me ask you that. Whether, Let me ask you, though. You want to, whether or not you just want to say people are concerned about foreign policy. And, and I do think there is a, a big concern about, look, there are still Americans, American citizens uh, who are trying to get out of Afghanistan and can't. And, and this is a guy who went on TV and said everybody who wants to leave can leave. And, and obviously they have not been able to. Um, I, I think that that hurts them. Uh, the other piece is uh, well, well, let me, before you get to the other piece, let me let me ask you the flip side of this. I mean, uh, President Obama wanted to get out of Afghanistan to a certain extent and didn't. President Trump said that we would get out of Afghanistan and he wasn't able to accomplish that. President Biden right. said we would get out of Afghanistan and end the country's longest war. And he got us out of Afghanistan and ended the country's longest war. Now, I I've been on record as saying that I don't think that that was the right move. We'll get to that in the bonus show. But that also is something that's going to be used. And so I wonder to what extent that at least partially mitigates the fact that, you know, those images and that sort of thing. I really think that you, because you are such a very deeply informed voter and you pay a lot of attention to this, and for you, for, for your entire lifetime, foreign policy is a big deal. I think you are greatly greatly overestimating how much regular Americans who aren't nearly as politically active and involved and engaged as you and I are, how much they, they care about that sort of thing. And well, I mean, we'll find out, but I, that's, that's kind of my response on the Afghanistan part. So, so I, I think um, my response to that is, is, is you're kind of right, but I'm kind of making the, the other argument is that People maybe don't care that much about foreign policy. For example, for the example of if you ask anybody uh, at any time, hey, would uh, do you think we should get out of Afghanistan? Most people would say, well, sure. Right. Uh, you know, do, do we think we should be sending American troops over to, to some godforsaken hellhole? Uh, yeah, the, the answer is almost always no to that in, in, uh, initial question. Um but if if the question then becomes, do you think we need to project American military force to uh, protect us against terrorism uh, abroad? Most people would say, well, yeah, I'd think more about that. And and I think you can say those are those are sort of the foreign policy questions. But the the images of defeat, I think, are are stronger. That Americans do care about that. They may care less about. Um, or, or may care to some extent uh, to answer the question on sure I think we should we should get out of wars uh, war is bad um, uh, but but have, I see have your point the optics the optics of it sure defeat yeah yeah I see what you're saying and, and also keep in mind Afghanistan isn't wasn't uh, Vietnam right where you had uh, you know at one point up to you know five hundred thousand troops on the ground and. Uh, mass casualties uh, being reported every night. Um, it, it's, it, it was a different kind of war and people marching in the street. There weren't people marching in the streets uh, to say U.S. out of Afghanistan. No. So, so saying, uh, look, I ended an unpopular war. Well, okay. Um, he sort of ended a war that in a lot of cases, most people had kind of forgotten about. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I see your point. Yeah, I, I, yeah, so that may be, but well, again, we'll get more into the Afghanistan thing on the, uh, on the bonus show. But more generally speaking, do you think that, that this sort of Biden slump, if it continues, is that the sort of thing that's uh, something that you wouldn't want, I would expect, good for Donald Trump? Oh, I suppose it's good for Republicans across the board. Um, 
whether it's you know something particular to Donald Trump, I don't I don't know that he gets. I don't know that Donald Trump gets any advantage uh, out of it more than any other Republican. Yeah. Okay. Right. Presidential uh, candidate, and, and perhaps even maybe a little less. Uh, right. That that this opens the door for um, a Republican to to run and say, look, let's let's set aside some of the ideology. Uh, what we need is just plain competence uh, and and someone who's not not nuts, uh, mercurial sort of <laughs> as, as Donald Trump is. Um, and and you know here's here's somebody who can handle uh, foreign relations can can take that three in the morning phone call, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, there might even be a sense that it it, it cuts against him, right? Mm, yeah, it's like you, you've had kind of two brands of crazy. Uh, although I, I I wouldn't say Biden is is crazy. It's a different sort of two brands of incompetence, I guess. Um, yeah, and, and and Biden campaigned on competence, and you know I think if if you have someone who is more of a steady hand, a uh, uh, a Mike Penceian uh, uh, type uh, type, um, yeah, you know maybe maybe it helps him more, you know, in in the margins. Yeah. I, I would think Pence is, is fatally flawed for other reasons, but we will we we will continue this conversation. It's basically going to be almost a seamless continuation with more on Afghanistan because of that. I mentioned that uh, top three top Pentagon leaders testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee this week. We're also going to talk about the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which was introduced recently in the House, maybe take some listener questions as well. And all that is going to be on the bonus show, which will be available to you, well, right now if you're hearing this, and that's two that's available to our Patreon supporters. If you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys to sign up. And if you would just like to get that bonus show, but you can't afford to support the show right now, just send me an email, Mike at politicsguys.com. And for any reason you don't want to support the show on Patreon, you have issues with Patreon. I don't know. You can also support the show through PayPal or on Venmo. We're at politics guys. And one thing that would really help in supporting the show that costs absolutely nothing, takes very little time, is if you could subscribe to the show if you're not already a subscriber, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share uh, the show on social media. That is a big help to us. A special thanks, to our, as always, to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show for you next week. We hope to join us.